0: Before we jump in, come on, just stand there like a, like a human. Uh, we have run into a bit of a problem in the fact that we have the, the next round, which will not be Theological Foundations 1. It will be Salvation History 2. Uh, but that first week in August, we're going to have the church camp out on that first full weekend there. So that means on August fifth, just pull up my calendar. Come on. Where are you at? Hello. August fifth is gonna be I believe the weekend that we're we're having camp out thing. Uh, anyway, so what we'd like to do is scooch instead of doing Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday Saturday, Tuesday, Thursday. So the Saturday would actually be July 29th for School of Ministry and then August 1st and August 3rd will follow the all-day Saturday. So if you guys can just make that adjustments in your calendars uh, we'll we'll scooch August 5th to July 29th and then we won't be running into Church Family Camp. Uh, If you get on the app, I appreciated this morning Corrine came in and said hey I was on the app and I noticed it's on this day I I (laughs) I was proud of you as well so good so anyways just for reference there get that yeah it's called church center (laughs) and then I found this that was the uh, Nebuchadnezzar lion and the the whole base was lined with those inside the throne room and then walking in outside the palace it was lined with those as well Daniel walked by that lion kind of cool it's funny the picture is actually anticlimactic it's the idea of it that you're like this is so cool yeah. all right picking up on page 96 quote we'll start with a quote from nt right here the idea of israel's god becoming king is to be seen within the context of the whole historical expectation of israel dependent on old testament expression of hope for the universal divine rule, one of the central biblical books which emphasizes this theme was, of course, Daniel, which significantly was a favorite of the revolutionary minded Jews in the first century, since they reinterpreted it so that it spoke of a kingdom to be set up against the present Roman kingdom. So rather than the rock being the kingdom of God that hits and falls and then grows into a mighty mountain, they're like, We're the rock, and we're the mountain, and it's all going to happen in one go. Uh, So fill in the blanks here for salvation history. The Old Testament is a story waiting for an ending. Through the prophets, Israel's hope is beginning to take shape. Israel will wait for God to restore their nation, especially in his provision of the Spirit and a definitive forgiveness of sins. Graciously brings some Israelites back to the land. Israel does not enjoy, though, the full restoration that is promised in the prophets. So Israel enters a period of waiting, waiting for their covenant God to establish his kingdom and fulfill all his promises. There's a lot of them in that one. I'll just leave it up for a second. So, tracing a biblical theology of exile and exodus, the exile precedes exodus in the Bible. We begin our biblical theology in the Garden of Eden Genesis 3, 2 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also take the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove, him, drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword and turned away every to guard the way of the tree of life. true story all right so we've already studied Israel's exodus from Egypt in some detail after that exodus God gives the law to his people in which he warns them of the punishment of exile if they break the covenant again this is that covenant pattern that we see again and again God giving uh, that covenant warning and we have some form of blessing apostasy Exile, and then God bringing them back. So Leviticus 26, 27
1: to 33. Tim, you want to read that? But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters and I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols and my soul will abhor you and I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not smell your pleasing aromas and and I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it and I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheathe the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste.
0: And Deuteronomy 28, as, as we read it, uh, be thinking about, okay, what ways are these passages revealing uh, the exile to be the reverse of the exodus? So the, the reverse of all of God's blessings, what, what do we see in this? Deuteronomy 28, 58, 68.
1: If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. Then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions. Afflictions severe and lasting, and sickness and grievous and lasting. And he will bring upon you again all the disease of Egypt, of which you were afraid. And they shall cling to you. Every sickness also okay. and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bring ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall not, you shall find no respite. And there shall be no resting place for, for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, If only were evening. And then at the at evening you shall say, If only were morning because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. And the Lord will bring you back in his ships to Egypt, a journey that I promise that you should never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no fire. All right, so what what
0: do you see there are the ways that this uh, is a reversal of the Exodus of God bringing His people out of Egypt, there's a whole bunch of them in there. Uh,
1: there numerous the stars
2: heaven, and that would be reversed.
0: Yep, yep, they were numerous. God's going to shrink their numbers down.
2: Instead of blessing, curses.
0: Instead of blessing, there's curses. Yep. Going back to Egypt. Going back to Egypt. Yeah, I, I said you were never going back there. You're going back mm-hmm. if you don't behave yourself. Yeah, yeah. So coming out of Exodus, I, I, the Exodus out of Egypt, God said, I'm taking you to this land. I'm going to plant you in this land. And now he says, I'm going to pluck you out of this land, remove you from it. Instead of
2: subjugating your enemies
0: to your enemies, we will you. Yeah, yep, your un- enemies are winning over you. Uh, when God brought them out of Egypt, they were slaves. And now he said, you're going to go back to Egypt and you're going to sell yourself. And no one's going to buy you. You're the slave no one once. So even after predicting the horrors of exile that would happen because of Israel's sin, God promises a second exodus, a return to the land
1: from exile. Deuteronomy 31 through 10. Tim, you want to read that too. And when all these things came upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God you and your children and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul and then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven from there the Lord Lord your God will gather you and and from there he will take you and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed that you may possess it And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecute you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord, your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes that, were, that are written in this book of the law, when you turn it to the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul.
0: All right, so Solomon picks up on that promise of Deuteronomy and pleads for the people of Israel if they should go into exile. 1 Kings 846 to 53, If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away in captive land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet if they turn in their heart in the land in which they have been carried captive, if they repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned, we have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their mind, with all their heart, in the land of their enemies who carried them into captivity and pray to you towards the land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, the house that you have built for your name. Then hear in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause. Forgive your people who have sinned against you, all their transgressions they've committed against you. Grant them compassion in the sight of those who've carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people, your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt in the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servants, to the plea of the people of Israel, giving ear to whomever will call. So Isaiah's prophetic hope for restoration is developed into the ministry of the prophets. Now, what we're seeing, hopefully, as we trace these lines of biblical theology, is you have a seed at the beginning, and then the idea grows and grows and grows. And the closer we get to Christ and the fulfillment of it, Uh, the more full and complete that picture becomes. So two prophets here, uh, Isaiah in Isaiah 11, and then Jeremiah in Jeremiah 16. Tim, you want to read those?
1: In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines, in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put on put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river, of, river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria, from the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. In Jeremiah 16, 14-15. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north co- country, and out of all the countries where he had driven them. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. All right, so in
0: those, what imagery is used to describe the return from exile And why might he have used that? In particular, maybe to make this a little easier, uh, the imagery seems to be of a second exodus, a a second deliverance from Egypt. Why, Why might the prophets be keying in on that? Yeah. And
2: so how much more in the second time if they call it greater?
0: Yeah, oh. sure. So that being a picture of God's great salvation towards his people. And if that was the greatest picture we have, and then we go, and this one's going to be even greater, where it's not just brought from one place, but from scattered all over the place. Yeah. There's imagery within that, like before God brought them out of Egypt they were just an ethnic slave group and when he brought them out they were a new people a new nation like they they were the planting of God that he's going to transplant from Egypt into the promised land Uh, there was there was that whole idea like we are something new like God is is establishing something new and here uh, you have these foreshadowings of the new covenant that are coming in this as well Uh, One of the most tragic scenes in the Bible is the description of God's glory departing from the temple in Jerusalem. As God lifts his presence from Israel, he promises to bring foreign nations in to judge and destroy Israel. And yet, even at this tragic moment, God promises a return from exile and a new inward purification for Israel. Exile is judgment upon sin, but the new exodus will be the removal of that sin. And those things are are paired together in the way that God presents this. So uh, let's read Exodus, or not Exodus, Ezekiel 11,
1: 13 to 23. And it came to pass while I was prophesying that Pelotiah, the son of Benaiah, died. Then I fell down on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, Your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. To us this land is given for a possession. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Though I removed them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries. Where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of, give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after the detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of God of Israel is over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city.
0: So we find again and again biblical themes of exile and exodus developed more and more in this interestal oh I- Aiden scratched his head and I thought he was like waving a question back there. Uh, in this intertestamental period, as Israel realizes that the promised return from exile has not yet happened. So like we're back, but we're not back. It, we aren't into this moment of restoration. Then in the ministry of Jesus, surprising things begin to happen to indicate, that the time of Israel's waiting for renewal is over. So Matthew 8, 5 through 13, when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I tomb a man under, under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go. And he goes to another, come. And he comes and to my servant, do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following him, Truly, I tell you, no one in Israel has had such faith. And I tell you, uh, many will come from east and west, reclining at the table of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Matthew 10, 1 through 7, and he called to him's 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal every disease every affliction uh just an important note right there in verse one we are we are a continuationist congregation in other words we believe that god continues uh, to work by his spirit in the world so uh we pray for people to be healed now There's a big difference, and this is where uh, the whole prosperity and faith gospel has turned this into an idol of itself. Um, They would say that it's God's will to heal every single time. And we know practically in reality in this life that doesn't happen, even to them, right? Even the prosperity, health and wealth gospel guys get sick and die. And yet look at the difference between the experiential that we see in that sort of glimmer of what's to come and the description in Matthew 10 verse 1, he gives them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. That This was not a haphazard, I wonder if this is going to work. This is a dispensation of the Holy Spirit's power that was given to the apostles that we don't see specifically given in this measure to everybody else so just file that away in your brains the names of the 12 apostles refer simon who's called peter andrew his brother james son of zebedee john his brother philip bartholomew thomas matthew the tax collector james son of Alphaeus; thaddeus simon the Canaan, judas iscariot who betrayed him these 12 jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no towns of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So how do those New Testament passages point us towards that second Exodus? Thinking of exile and Exodus. So exile being removed from God's blessing and God's land, Exodus, God bringing us out of that place of exile back into the place of inheritance, provision, and blessing. So go to go to the Jewish house first. Don't go to the the Gentiles. What is it that they're bringing with them? What is it they're bringing to them? The what? The gospel. The gospel. Yep, yep. Proclamation of good news. What else? Yeah, uh, health, healing. Not just spiritual salvation, but physical salvation. It is, it is the first glimmer of the coming of the kingdom of God. Not just the kingdom of Israel, but as we pull that thread into the New Testament, where we're looking not towards just a restoration of some uh, Israeli national power, but to the kingdom of God, which is that rock that grows until it encompasses the whole world. All right, so. Uh, even lordship over the demonic, even lordship over uh, physical healings and sickness and all of that, so much so that the centurion says, you don't even have to come, you're the lord of this thing, just speak to it, just speak to it and my servant will be healed. All right, after surveying uh, the Gospel of Mark's prologue, literary structure, the in nearly the entire text of the gospel ricky watts concludes mark presents jesus in terms of fulfillment of israel's hope for a new exodus especially as described in the book of isaiah his gospel is therefore to be seen in continuity with god's historic dealings with his people but now also including the gentiles it fascinating when you think about uh Our perspective, well, ours, everybody except Josiah over there, who's got 2% Jewish ancestry in him, which came as quite a surprise when we got the uh, Ancestry.com thing back. Uh, We would all be excluded from these covenant promises and fulfillment. Like it, It was for the Jewish people. Only now, this new exodus includes people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. So finally, let's see how these twin themes of exile and exodus are developed in the rest of the New Testament. Tim, you want to just plow through those?
1: Ephesians 2, 11-22. Therefore, remember that at one time you, Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumc- uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you, who are far off in peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to one Spirit, to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. First Peter 1, 1-2 <clears throat> Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are, elect exi- who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. First Peter 1, 13-19 Therefore, Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as you, as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in your in all your conduct. Since it is written, "You shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. First Peter two, eleven through twelve. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, They may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. All
0: right, thanks. So, a final question in this section sort of thinking about our status where we fall as Christians today, are we living in exile or have we been brought to God from exile? Yes. Yes. Jesus. Good answer. Good answer, Sunday School. So explain, yes.
3: We have been brought to God from exile um, in the sense that as Gentiles, we were once far off and then now brought into the covenant family of God where we prior to this had no, no entryway or no, no means of salvation at all. So, yes, in that sense, but we're still here waiting in a period for when Christ will come to uh, rescue his bride and fulfill um, that part of the, mm-hmm.
0: of the covenant,
3: of Christ's second coming. Good. Anybody
2: else? It's the, the message of Jesus that the kingdom of God
0: is coming and is now here. Yeah. yeah it's, it's both, yeah good it, it is that wonderful and yet difficult reality that we live in of the already but not yet nature of the kingdom of god that it is here it has been here it is the rock that is growing upon the earth and yet we don't see the fulfillment of it yet but we don't see every enemy crushed under his feet And so we live in that sort of time of waiting in between for God to accomplish fully his purposes. All right, lesson seven. After me comes he who is mightier than I. So this has brought us all the way up to the beginning of the New Testament. God's promises to his people. God's been faithful to his people. God delivered them out of bondage, brought them into the land. When they were unfaithful, he led them into exile. And now the second exodus has brought them back into the land. But ever since then, they've lived under the impression of somebody else. That there is one who is coming. So more than 400 years have passed since the last of the great prophets. The glorious promises that God made to Israel have not been fully realized. And Israel has waited Under Greek domination first, then Egyptian, then Syrian, Israel hasn't achieved the status that it had under King David or King Solomon. Its languished and its prayers and cries for help seem to go unanswered. Seemed is a fairly important word in there. Has God forgotten his covenant people? Of course not. So in this lesson, we're going to study, see the expectations of the first century Jews, the message of John the baptizer, and the prophetic ministry of the uneducated, common manner, laborer of Nazareth. So how would preaching the kingdom of God have been interpreted and received in its first original context? What are we to make of this man who casts out demons, who heals the sick, and even raises the dead? Could this be the promised son of David that they said is coming? And what do we do when he doesn't look like it or act like it, at least what we expect? All right, so a king like David or Judas Maccabeus. So we see in the last lesson that Daniel had predicted that four kingdoms would rise against Israel before God would establish his kingdom. It is provable that most Jews recognize that the Romans represented the fourth and last evil kingdom. And this belief would explain the flurry of messianic rumors, whisperings, pretensions that swirled about the first century Jewish world. The Romans were not kind overlords. They, they weren't uh, gracious benefactors, just there for their good. Even though uh, when you look back at history that was written predominantly by Romans, it, it's it's the victors who get to write histories. Uh, the Roman story is we went to all these places and we helped them because we built roads for them. If you, if you studied sociology in school, history in school... Uh, and you can still go and see the aqueducts today. We brought water to the people. Uh, we did all of these things. We, we established uh, at least a limited form of democracy in these places. And yet, in reality, uh, they were cruel. Uh, they were totalitarian. Like, there, was no, there was no like back and forth. Even for fast-forwarding into the New Testament, as Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate is given a rather terrible and difficult assignment of being a Roman official over a rebellious area in Jerusalem that has been known for rebellions. And if even the Roman guy who's in charge of taking, taking charge, keeping things in order, if he can't get the job done, it's his neck that's on the line. And we, when we say that, we don't mean it like when your boss says something to you at work like get this done cuz it's your neck that's on the line what he means is you'll get fired at the end of the day what could have been was literally his neck was separated head from body right uh, this was this was dramatic in the way that they uh, lorded over these territories that they conquered the jews resented that reign and their disregard for Israel's God, therefore Jewish revolt was smoldering under the surface most of that time, most of the time that the Romans were there. A few false messiahs has already tried to break the yoke of the Roman rule, and it's important to realize that Jesus was not the first, nor would he be the last. In fact, Jesus himself is going to tell us, look, others are going to say, here's the Christ, there he is, and he says, don't go after him. To the first century Jewish world, it was a tinderbox waiting to burst into flame or open revolution. So, in order for us to understand how Israel's hopes have been shaped and solidified, we need some understanding of her history between the fall of Jerusalem, 587 BC, and the birth of Jesus, somewhere around uh, 6 to 4 BC. Here's one of the summaries of the history between the distinction, the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, and the rise of Antiochus Epiphanius. N.T. Wright writes this, The story of the second temple, Judaism, is one of tension and tragedy. The Babylonians had destroyed the first temple in 587 B.C. Ever since then, those who looked to Jerusalem and its temple as the center of their homeland and the very reason for their existence as people had been faced with mounting tension between the faith they professed and the facts they perceived. The exile had not only uprooted them from their land, it had placed a great question mark against the pre-exilic faith in the ancestral God. When the great moment had come, Babylon had been destroyed. Israel did not become free. The mistress in her own land, the Persians who had crushed Babylon, were generous overlords to the Jews, but overlords nonetheless. As we have already seen, Alexander the Great swept through the old Persian Empire and beyond painting a the map a new color and imposing a new culture. The two subsequent overlords by Egypt in the third century and Syria in the second make the story more complex, but do not alter the basic fact that the world is now Greek. So let's look at a significant passage from 1st Maccabees, a piece of Jewish intertestamental literature, uh, part of the Apocrypha that we do not have in the Protestant Bible, Uh, but it is uh, historically descriptive of the defeat of Antiochus Epiphanes and his desecration of the temple in 167 BC. Uh, Timmy, you want to read that?
1: At daybreak, Judas appeared in the plain with three thousand men, but they did not have armor and swords as they as they desired. And they saw the camp of the Gentiles, strong and fortified with cavalry all around it, and these men were trained in war. But Judas said to those who were with him, "Do not fear for their numbers. Do not fear their numbers, or be afraid when they charge. Remember how our ancestors were saved at the Red Sea, when Pharaoh with his forces pursued them. And now let us cry to heaven to see whether He will favor us and remember His covenant with our ancestors and crush." this army before us today. Then all the Gentiles will know that there is one who redeems and saves Israel. When the foreigners looked up and saw them coming against them, they went out from their camp to battle. Then the men with Judas blew their trumpets and engaged in battle. The Gentiles were crushed and fled into the plain, and all those in the rear fell by the sword. They pursued them to and to the plains of Edomia, and to Ezatos, into Jamnia, Gemma- and three thousand of them fell. Then Judas and his force turned back from, the pr- from pursuing them, and he said to the people, Do not be greedy for plunder, for there is a battle before us. Gorgias and his force are near us in the hills, but stand now against our enemies and fight them, and afterwards seize the plunder boldly. Just as Judas was finishing his speech, a detachment appeared, Coming out of the hills, they saw that their army had been put to flight, and that the Jews were burning the camp. For the smoke that was for the smoke that was seen showed what had happened. When they perceived this, they were greatly frightened. And when they also saw the army of Judas drawn up in the plain for battle, they all all fled into the land of the Philistines. Then Judas returned to plunder the camp, and they seized a great amount of gold and silver and cloth. Dyed blue and sea purple And great riches On their return they they sang hymns and praises to heaven For he is good For his mercy endures forever Thus Israel had a great deliverance that day Then Judas and his brothers said See our enemies are crushed Let us go up to cleanse the sanctuary And dedicate it So all the army assembled and went up to Mount Zion There they saw the sanctuary desolate The altar profaned And the gates burned In the courts they saw bushes sprung up As in a thicket Whereas on one of the mountains, they, also, they saw also the chambers of the priests in ruins. Then they tore their clothes and mourned with great lamentation. They sprinkled themselves with ashes and fell face down on the ground. And when the signal was given with the trumpets, they cried out to heaven. Then Judas detailed, detailed men to fight against those in the citadel until he had cleansed the sanctuary. He chose a blameless priest devoted to the law. And they cleansed the sanctuary and removed the defiled stones to an unclean place. They deliberated what to do about the altar of burnt offering, which had been profaned. And they thought it best to tear it down so that it would not be a lasting shame to them, for the Gentiles had defiled it. So they tore down the altar and stored the stones in a a convenient place on the temple hill until a prophet should come to tell them what to do with them. Then they took... "...unhewn stones as the law directs, and built a new altar like the former one. They also rebuilt the sanctuary and the interior of the temple and consecrated the courts. They made new holy vessels and brought the lampstand, the altar of incense, and the table into the temple. Then they offered incense on the altar and lit the lampstand on the lampstand, and these gave light to the temple. They placed the bread on the table and hung up the curtains." Thus they finished all the work they had undertaken. Early in the morning on the twenty-fifth day of the ninth month, which is the month of Chislev, in the one hundredth forty-eighth year, they rose and offered sacrifice, as the law directs. On the new altar of burnt offering they, that they had built at, that, at the very season and on the very day that the Gentiles had profaned it, it was dedicated with songs and harps and lutes and cymbals. All the people fell on their faces and worshipped and blessed heaven who had pro Prospered then. All
0: right. So, how does this non-biblical account, in other words, this isn't found in your Bible, but how does it resonate with what we've studied so far? What are the echoes of past deliverances that you see in this? It,
2: it definitely seems almost like a battle you've met from the Old Testament when they coming
3: into Israel.
0: Yep. Yep, echoes of the Old Testament. It
3: references the Red Sea and the Exodus and how Pharaoh was at the Red Sea.
0: Yeah, so they're they're pointing back to God's original Exodus deliverance from Egypt, His faithfulness in seeing them through the sea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's what do you do then? I mean, there. Clearly, in the way they said it, there were people who were uh, like saying that they were prophets because they were waiting for one, as opposed to well, let's see if somebody gets born this week and wait till he grows up. It's gonna be awesome. Yeah, it, we see this this drive towards the restoration of the right worship of God, uh, an honoring of the things of God, the temple of the Lord, uh, the way God is worshipped, even we're going to tear down the old altar that's been desecrated so that it isn't a lasting shame, a lasting testimony against us. Uh, we're we're really going to cleanse and start over. The victory of Judas Maccabeus and the cleansing of the temple, 164 BC, formed Jewish messianic expectations, for the next two centuries. This is super important because they're actually seeing Jesus through the lens of Judas. Under Roman domination, Israel was again looking for a military leader to throw off the yoke of Roman oppression and restore Israel's moral and ceremonial purity. Here's one summary of the history between the cleansing of the temple, 164, and the rise of King Herod in 37 B.C. It's also necessary, however, to see if these expectations are actually reflected in the Bible. So let's look at the following passages with an eye towards what are their expectations and what are the people involved, Were they concerned with? All right, so Matthew 2, 1 through 8, and then verse 16. Now, after Jesus was born in Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who's been born? King of the Jews, for we saw his star and we've come to worship him. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And he told them in Bethlehem in Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them that the time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. When you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men it's kind of interesting because we get no matter what he said we get his plan which was i'm going to find this king and destroy him matthew 20 20, 2021 then the mother of the sons of zebedee came up with her sons and kneeling before him asked him for something and he said and he said to her what do you want and she said say that these two sons of mine are to sit on your right hand and one on your Mm -hmm. left in your kingdom. Uh, she clearly has in mind a kingly rule in which these guys get to be uh, prime ministers of some sort. And I love that mommy has to do the asking for them. It's just awesome. Uh, Mark 11, 7 through 10, they brought the colt to Jesus through their cloaks. He sat on it and many spread their cloaks on the road, others with leafy branches they'd cut in the fields. And those went before him, those who followed him were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. When they say blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, what do they have in mind? Political kingdom, right? An earthly rule. Mark 15, 31 to 32. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others, but he can't save himself let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Luke 19, 8-11, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded any one of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem, they and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Luke 24, 18-21. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, Are you the only visitors in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said, to them, what things? And they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. How the chief priests and rulers delivered him over, delivered him up to be condemned to death, and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. John, how how tragic is that? I, I know we often. Uh, point to the end of that story, as Jesus reveals Himself to them, and and they say, "Did not our hearts burn within us?" How tragic to literally be speaking to the Lord of Glory, and say He didn't turn out to be who we thought He was. Ugh. John six eleven to fifteen. Jesus then took the loaves when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted, when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves that they left of those who had eaten. And the people saw the sign that he had done. They said, this is indeed the prophet. The prophet being one of those designations that they would have had as an understanding of the Messiah who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come to take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The last one, John forty, 7, 40 through 43. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this is really the prophet. There you go. You, You see it again. Others said, this is the Christ. Another name for the Messiah. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. All right, so thinking through those passages, what did the people expect of the Messiah? What did they expect Christ was to be like? A reigning king, specifically a political king. A king, yeah, is going to overthrow Rome. And not from a place like Galilee? Definitely not from like a little kind of uh, hick backwoods place. Like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I read a, a commentator a while ago who was talking about the fact that Galilee gets singled out where they, they pick it up by the accent. They're like, I can tell by your accent that you are from this area and it really kind of had this idea that we can tend to have a little bit those of us who are from the north and then we get around people who are I mean how many times have we made the joke I mean not me obviously but bad people (laughs) uh, and called Rome City Rome Tucky And, and there's there's sort of like casting aspersions on like we hear your accent We're just assuming, listen, nothing great's coming from there. It's
2: not the accent. People are literally from Kentucky
0: there. It's not the accent. They're literally from Kentucky there. Yeah. Uh, So, same thing with Galilee. Like, we have no expectations of something great. Now, Bethlehem, ah, the city of David, right? The the village of David. Uh, Great things might come from there, but probably not Galilee. Interesting also that they'd done their homework and they, they were waiting in expectation and they were watching certain things. Again, does this not sound reminiscent of what we talked about on Tuesday or Thursday? I don't remember which one. Uh, with misguided Christians just sitting in bated breath expectation. Are they going to rebuild the temple? Are they going to rebuild it? The red, the, red the red heifers. The red heifers. Right? Uh, man, you're looking in the wrong place. And if you keep it up, you're going to miss Christ. Bummer. Matthew sixteen twenty through 23. Then he strictly charged them, charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and rebuked him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you he turned to Peter and said get behind me Satan you're a hindrance for me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but the things of man in other words Peter's conversation with Jesus was based on what he brought to the table rather than what stood in front of him this is why we have to be diligent students of scripture and as the reformation motto says semper reformanda always reforming, always saying, God, is this me bringing this to the table, or is this what you have clearly spoken, clearly demonstrated in your word? Luke chapter 1, verse 67 and 75, and his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation. Uh, when it says horn of salvation, that is always an imagery of of the anointing horn, which signified this guy's the king. So uh, you'll see different imagery in prophetic language and uh, even in poetic things. Looking backwards, where that that horn is a kingly salvation type thing. It's so raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of the servant David. Uh, he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us. To show us. The mercy promised to our fathers and to be remembered in his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father abraham to grant to us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days and luke 22 47 to 50 while he was still speaking there came a crowd and the man called judas one of the 12 was leading them he drew near to jesus and kissed him Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. I love that that's Peter. (laughs) I I also, it was a few years ago uh, that it occurred to me When they walk up on the disciples, it doesn't look like they are armed. Like nobody's concerned about them. He's able to get right next to the guy. And then because he's terrible with the sword, he hacks the guy's ear off. But as they're leaving the Last Supper, as they're leaving the table of the Lord, uh, he makes the comment about, if you don't have a sword, sell your extra cloak and buy a sword. And they go, well, Lord, here's two of them. He's like, that's enough. That's good. Which means two guys had concealed carry at the Last Supper. <laughs> that is astounding in, in my little Mennonite brain that I grew up with. That just melts out the side a little bit. Like, Josh, what were you going to say? I was going to say, Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's what, not normal. What kind of scuffle just happened over here? Yeah. Was it that
2: Peter wasn't good with the sword, or was it that the other guy ducked to try and miss
0: him? Maybe he's really good. He, he was in... Never mind. I was going <laughs> I was going to make a joke. It's not even funny, so it doesn't matter. All right, so what's the common expectation of how the Davidic kingdom would come that we see in these passages leading up to it? Military overthrow. Military overthrow. We're going to have freedom. In fact, now remember, they're pulling in this this biblical theology thread of all God's promises. It wasn't just we're going to overthrow those who are ruling over us. What was the promise to God's people when he placed them in the land? You're going to rule over them, right? It's not just we're going to be free to do our own thing. You are going to rule over all those who have subjected you. So uh, it is... It is surprising and not surprising that Jesus' disciples, even after three years of walking day after day with Jesus, still have this way of thinking ingrained in their hearts. I'm still pretty sure this is going to end up a military thing. We have to pursue it like that. With expectations running high for a Messiah to deliver Israel from oppression, you can imagine how John... The Baptizer, I always think it's nice to call him John the Baptizer. That's what he was doing as opposed to John the Baptist. Uh, Anyways, John the Baptist preaching would have exploded onto the scene. Uh, That's why Mark describes in Mark 1.5, all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him. Even the religious leaders, the the scribes and Pharisees, go out because they want to have a good look at what's going on. So compare the following New Testament passages... About John the Baptist to the prophecies from the Old Testament, and it, be thinking as as we read these. Here's the question afterwards: uh, What is the primary role of Elijah? Remember, he's coming in this sort of mantle of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. So, what was what was to be the role of Elijah? Tim, you want to read these
1: scriptures to us? Matthew 11:9 through 14. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, "Behold, I send my messenger before you, before your face, who will prepare your way before, who will prepare your way before you." Truly, I say to you, among those born of a wo- of woman, there has arisen, arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who has who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah, who is to come. Luke one13 13-17 But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be a, he will be great before the lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the holy spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many other children of israel to the lord their god and he will go before him and he will go before him in the spirit and power of elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the lord a people prepared Malachi 4, 4-6 Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Isaiah 40, 1-11 Comfort, comfort my people, says, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her with, that her wa- warfare has is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness: Prepare the way of the, of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for, for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the in the rough places a, a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it again, see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry, and I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, with when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord, of our God, will stand forever. Get up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom, and gently lead those... That are with the young.
0: All right, so what is the role of Elijah?
1: To prepare the hearts of the people, to turn the hearts um, back to God. And
0: Yeah, so prepare the way of the Lord and prepare the hearts of the people, right? So uh, declaring the Lord is coming, the King is coming, and at the same time, preparing the hearts of the people in such a way that would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children back to the fathers. Uh, not not just so that we have happy families. That's not what he's aiming at, right? right? This is a restoration of that uh, covenant family that is together seeking and going after the Lord, that is faithful to his word. Uh, Primarily, though, he stands as the one who declares the king is coming, Jesus is coming. So salvation history here, the Jews were expecting a Davidic king who would overthrow the Romans. Their Messiah would be a military ruler in the mold of David or Judas Maccabeus. Kingdom of God would be established when pagan armies would be put under the feet of God's anointed one in Israel. John the Baptist was to prepare the people of Israel for this. So that's what they saw. They saw uh, a military ruler who was coming, who would not only free them, but put them now in the role of conqueror, of those who had once conquered them. So let's look a little bit at John the Baptist and Jesus and their engagement with each other. First, look at John the Baptist's message. Matthew 3, 4 through 12. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all over the region about the Jordan were going out to him. They were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. When they saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do, not, do I get to say that on like a Sunday morning when somebody comes in? I'm like, I'm pretty sure you brood of vipers. If I do, you guys back me up. Okay, anyways. Uh, do not presume to say for yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. I will baptize, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. All right, so how would you summarize John's message? Are there any significant, surprising omissions? How does his message compare to the common Jewish expectation? Yeah, there's no, there's no mention of a military victory just a call to repentance. But also a warning at the end. I mean, with the
2: burning of
0: the chaff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that the Jewish leaders would have heard that warning very clearly when they heard the, the axes at the root. By the way, you're the tree. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the burning of the chaff. Oh, yeah, that's you. You know, I I, it seems like that's very very clear. So John the Baptist's message could be summarized as the Messiah is coming to bring the judgment of God. Therefore, repent. What's missing in this message is any indication that the Messiah would first bring the judgment of God upon himself by dying sacrificially. That's kind of interesting that that's not in there. John's message also does not indicate that the Messiah would bring a spiritual victory in his first coming. And a military victory only in his second coming. Therefore, John was most likely operating with the common Jewish expectation for a king in the likeness of Judas Maccabeus. Which I think as we go on, we're going to see that borne out a little bit. Yep.
1: I don't know. Similarities Mm -hmm. that would align with the text that we use. What is it, let's use this book for example, Maccabees, that is in there that does not align with the rest of Scripture? Why is it like that departed?
0: Right. Okay, so the the question is we read from Maccabees. What in that is different from the rest of Scripture? Why isn't it included in Scripture? Uh, So some of the the apocryphal books differ a little bit they're they're not all exactly the same thing uh this one being specifically a a history of what has happened so within that history uh, we can look at a historical account and it i mean i hope we even do this with like school textbooks that they're written from a perspective we don't we don't look at it and go this is 100% true and trustworthy, put all of your hope in this. And yet we would we would say this is an accurate history, right? So that's what, what we have in Maccabees is a historically verified historical account of what happened. Now, it's written from a way that sort of sounds a lot like the rest of Scripture. I mean, it's how people wrote those type of things. Uh, and yet, and I, I can't point to one specific thing. I, I'm not sure off the top of my head, but... Uh, There was enough consensus that they said this is not part of the canon of scripture. It's missing the divine spark that the authorship of God in this, although it's an accurate history. So guys like Martin Luther are going to go, everybody should read it. Uh, it, It's good for understanding. And yet we look at it in much the same way that we would look at a uh, historical book nowadays where it may be 100 percent accurate and we don't ascribe scriptural authority to it. Hey, it's not until later on that um, these books get ratified into the Bible, even though they would, their stories would have been included in like the Septuagint. Like they would have had these in there to, to know these stories. Uh, but as time went on, they, they got separated out. Some of the books that were in there uh, are less like that. They're less histories, And more writings in the style of the time, which would have uh, lended themselves more towards, given the fact that God is silent, uh, those speaking on behalf of God, and those ones, I think, get a little more sketchy, a little more dangerous. So I'm glad we have the Apocrypha, and I'm glad the Apocrypha is not included in our Bible. All right, where were we? Yeah, Matthew, Matthew. Uh, All right, so Jesus himself comes to John the Baptist. John's confusion and hesitation are understandable. So what can explain this surprising development. So think about think about what he's thinking going into this as Jesus arrives, Matthew 3, 13 to 17. And Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus answered, let it be so. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness then he consented and when jesus was baptized immediately he went up out of the water behold the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of god descending like a dove coming to rest on him behold a voice from heaven said this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased so how should we understand the baptism of jesus as depicted in matthew Yeah, it you could definitely see it as a call into his public ministry. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, this voice booming from heaven, at least in Matthew's account, uh, the heavens are open and. He sees the dove coming down. It's a little ambiguous who he is. Is that John? Is that Jesus? Somebody sees this dove coming down. Uh, but we're told in other accounts that uh, people heard the voice come from heaven, even though some go, I think that was thunder. That there's, there's a public like something, something just happened. So here's, here's a problem with interpreting the gospel of Matthew, in what way is Jesus being baptized as a fulfillment of all righteousness? That's a difficulty. One common answer to this question is that the baptism of Jesus fulfills biblical predictions about the Messiah, that it fulfills scripture, Matthew 5, 17 and 20. Others suggest that Jesus' identification with John's baptism for the forgiveness of sins foreshadows his his own atoning death Still others emphasize Jesus' humble solidarity with God's people, whatever the correct interpretation is. Jesus' baptism is the inception of his public ministry and the declaration that he is the Davidic king who was to come. It it is a public heralding and proclamation of the king, even though they don't understand that yet. John the Baptist preaches against Herod, who's at that moment ruling over Israel. Herod did not keep the law of Moses or have any Davidic right to the throne. He was not a proper ruler of God's people, but nevertheless, he arrests John and throws him into prison. Here's an account of what John does in prison. Matthew eleven two 2 through 6. Tim, you want to read that for us?
1: Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the, of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go, and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So John is confused by what he
0: is seeing and hearing in Jesus' ministry. It's really helpful to have followed this track of what are the Jewish people of this time expecting from the Messiah and John's just one of them. Even though he's a prophet, uh, God would speak a portion of the message, not a total revelation of his plans and purposes and how they all fit together. So he has, he has a bit of it. In fact, he has enough to know that Jesus is him, right? Because Jesus comes to him and he he goes, no, 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 no. Uh, I'm the one who needs baptized by you. And Jesus has to sort of command him to do it. Well, now he's observing Jesus' ministry, and he goes, this doesn't fit what I thought. And so he says to the Messiah, is it you, or should we expect someone else? So what, just from reading that, what can we understand about John's thoughts, his expectations, uh, that this passage reveals to us? Because yeah. if, if you're
3: supposed to be the, the, the Messiah, surely you're going to overthrow this and I'm, I'm good to go,
0: right? Yep. Yep. All right. So I, I think this is a really important one. I, I think this has real practical applications for uh, the people who you will find yourself in ministry to and even for your own life where we have these expectations about this is what it should look like when the kingdom of God comes near, whether it comes near our nation, comes near our church, comes near our family. And John brings those expectations to Jesus. Only what Jesus says and does doesn't seem to, he doesn't see how that lines up with that. And it, it, I think it's kind of an important thing. Uh, that Josiah was poking at there, that he's saying this from prison. Why was he in prison? Because he took a stand for righteousness. He took a stand for uh, the righteous standard of God against the uh, pagan unrighteousness around him. And now uh, he's in prison and it's not going to end well for him. Like he doesn't know that yet, but his head shall be lifted up (laughs) from him, right? To steal the language of genesis and he's saying okay if if i have this assumption that it's going to be a military overthrow and in fact to use the language of the exodus a deliverance will i be delivered and the answer was yes and no yes absolutely delivered and saved into the kingdom of god that you get to see firsthand uh, the inauguration of that king, like the inauguration of Christ's public ministry happened under John's watch. He's the first person who gets to see it. Did he get delivered the way he expected or desired? Not at all. I and mean, man, same for us as we uh, either love and serve other people or even observe things in our own life, where we expect a certain deliverance from God, a certain action from God. Uh, when that's not what we've been specifically promised. Uh, We've been promised that Christ will build his church and the gates of hell won't stand stand against it until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, right? And every enemy is placed under his feet. And yet there will be some really tough times that you have to walk with people through and we dare not promise them what the faith and prosperity gospel preachers promised them which is listen if you just work hard enough if you tithe big enough god will bless you god's going to turn this thing around man you can only say you can only say that if you're the traveling salesman who's passing through town because if you love people and you're involved in their life for the long run what you're going to see is that doesn't play out as well and at some point you gotta you gotta explain yourself Right. So here are the texts that Jesus alludes to in response to Jesus, to John's question that John says, are you the one? Is there somebody else? And Jesus, rather than pointing towards the text that they knew and had the assumptions of this king, points them to Isaiah. Isaiah 29, 17. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? And that day, The deaf shall hear and the words of a book. And out of the gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing and the scoffer cease. And all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. Who by a word make a man out to be an offender and lay a snare for him who reproves him in the gate. With an empty plea, turn aside. To him who is in the right, Isaiah 35:3-7. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. And the eyes of the blind will be open, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute man sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water, and the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. So commentators have claimed that John the Baptist knew that Jesus was going to die. Only I think that's significantly overstating it. Uh, John 1, 29 and 37 the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world now Lamb of God has some significant connotations right so what, what is Lamb of God pointing to what, what's the biblical theology that that points back at Sac- all of sacrifice right Absolutely. Passover Lamb which it never turned out good for the Passover Lamb year after year you'd think they'd learn mm-hmm. right Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom it is said after he comes, comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him for, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend. Okay, here we go. So John clears it up what Matthew doesn't. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, that is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the son of God, another designation for the Messiah. So Messiah, son of man, the prophet, son of God, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And two disciples heard this, heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So, I have a side question. Yeah, far away. Where did the,
2: uh, the ritual of water baptism originate?
0: Ah, good question. Without a good answer. But where, did, where did the ritual of water baptism... Uh, you find Old Testament passages and in fact we've read a ton of them of uh, cleansing and washing it, we find in the Old Testament um, ritual act of the priest a sprinkling with water and a sprinkling with blood uh, as a removal for sin but something has happened and we're scripturally we're not told and in fact historically it's ambiguous as well something has happened by the time uh, John arrives there's a thing called baptism and it, one of my questions, as I've looked into that in the past, has been, is this the byproduct of wanting to be good religious people, but God's not speaking? It, like we, We're just sort of doing our own thing, so we have to come with, with our own means and methods. Now I, I think it's better than that because uh, Jesus is going to command it in the new covenant, right? Uh, so I think it's the idea dropped by God, but by the time John shows up, it's not like, wait, what's baptism? It, it's clear to everybody. Uh, this is a religious act in, in sort of a public display that is in line with what came before us, So pulling those biblical theology threads of uh, sprinkling with blood and water in the past. Yep. But somehow it's arrived as a rite, as a ritual at this point. And we're not sure how. Unless you figured out and then... Let me know. We'll write the paper together. We gonna be famous, yo? All right, so how do we understand John's confession of behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? What could it be? What might it not be?
2: Yeah. But like that's that's our context of being this side of the gospel versus them, I wouldn't entirely know why he chose that wording, because that hadn't been fulfilled yet. But he was a prophet.
0: So yeah. there's yeah. a
2: certain amount of prophetic communication with God that's very supernatural. But for us it's a slain lamb.
0: Yeah. So I think you just said something that is really important to this discussion and understanding. He's a prophet. Now, that means, because he uses it a couple times, and because he uses it rightly, I think it is very, very safe for us to make the assumption God dropped on him that phrase, the Lamb of God. Like, he just sees Jesus walking, and the prophet rises up. Like, you you see this. I, I love when... King Saul tears Samuel's robe and the prophet in him, it's like, it's like the crocodile or the alligator beneath the surface is just waiting to spring up. Like the thing gets torn and he rises up and says, even so, God has torn the kingdom from you, right? Uh, that the prophet inside John rises up as he sees Jesus walk by and he says, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Like, like that sounds like prophet language. God dropping it on him. Does that necessarily mean that he knew what it meant for him to be the Lamb of God? Not necessarily. Uh, perhaps, in fact, when uh, when Orthodox Jewish people, even today, read Isaiah fifty-three, the passage of the Suffering Servant, and uh, what we see on this side of the cross—again, Aiden, that was pretty important—we're seeing it through the lens of the cross. And therefore, oh man, it just lines right up. Uh, Not looking through the lens of the cross, they see Isaiah 53 as talking about uh, Israel, the people of Israel being the son of God, and just all the suffering, all the hardship. So it's totally possible that he could have heard from God, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but of course that lamb will never be killed. Of course that lamb will never be hung on a tree because that would be being cursed by God. But he's going to suffer because it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. All right. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. well, I mean Even with John- Yeah.
2: because he wouldn't have asked that question in Matthew if uh, he thought that Jesus was
0: supposed to die yeah. yeah if he thought Jesus' death as the sacrificial lamb was the goal or even coming and that his purpose was not a political revolt but a circumcision of the heart then what he says from prison doesn't make a lot of sense so I think clearly there was, there was a lack of understanding that's there which I kind of love that this guy is literally Jesus' cousin. He is uh, a prophet of God. He's the prophet of God where Jesus says, of everybody who's been born of a woman,
1: <laughs>
0: which is everybody, <laughs> there's never been anybody better than him. Like that's, that's pretty high praise coming from Jesus. Uh, and he didn't, he didn't fully see it. He didn't fully get it right. I love that on days where I'm like shaking my head going, man, God, how did I not see that? How did I not know that? How did I not pick up on that? Why am I so late to the party? And then to be reminded, like, be faithful with what you have. Be faithful with what you
1: have. As, as, since John Baptist was Jesus' cousin, he would have grown up, possibly grown up, hearing the stories of their birth. In Mary's song, as she came to see Elizabeth, here he had grown up possibly here. I understand, like, the Bible clearly labels John as a prophet. Yeah. So he was speaking prophetically different things, but as Jesus came, he would have known, not just because God revealed it to him of who Jesus is, but he would have known because of his family. Mm-hmm. So as he's proclaiming these possibly growing up hearing these stories of why you also would have thought that same thing yeah well scripture also says that the spirit of God was on
2: John from the Lord right mm-hmm. so uh, you gotta wonder how
0: what did that look like
2: yeah as even as a
0: Uh, so yeah it's interesting john 1 that we just read a second ago where he says i myself did not know him but for this purpose i came baptizing with water that uh he's going to say the one who you who god tells him the one who you see the spirit descending on and remaining that's the one and then he goes i've obviously heard the stories like our moms have talked <laughs> there's been discussion. It was fairly significant the way I was born and the way he was born. There's been lots of chatter around, even if they didn't grow up in exactly the same location. Like there's, it's like, if you ask the Amish people in this area about some of the gossip from the next town over and they know it, right? Cause there, there's just an interconnectedness in these people. And same thing that, these people are connected. They're talking. And yet it's, it's the revelation of God that opens John's eyes to see who Jesus is. Yeah.
2: Isn't it like part of the origin of John, like when, is it Mary's cousin sister? When she's pregnant and John is being formed, it says that he like jumps in the presence of Mary. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: But I'm sure you he heard the story.
3: <laughs>
0: All right. So in some ways, Jesus preaching the kingdom of God, the coming reign of Israel's king, was similar to John the Baptist. He stretches the importance of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. But how is one to enter the kingdom? As we examine the following passages, let's look for the covenant structure. All right. So remember the covenant structure where God says, it's me who's speaking. And then he gives, here's the provisions, here's the stipulations, and here's the blessings or curses that come out of that. So Tim, if you want to read these to us and the rest of us, let's
1: What do you think? A man had two sons and he went oh, wait to... Wait a
0: minute, Tim. Did you just take your glasses off to read?
1: They were on top of my head and they were sliding down, so I... instead of having them fall.
0: But I mean, is this like an old man marker here? No. Yeah. Okay. Right. I'm,
1: I'm nearsighted.
0: Okay. All right. So I guess if, we wanted, if we wanted a moment to say welcome to the club, I, I didn't want to miss it. Nope. I apologize for the interruption.
1: I don't need reading glasses... yet. yet. <laughs> Verse 28, What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first, and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son, and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and even when you saw it, you did not did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Matthew 21, 33-45 Here another parable. There was a master of the house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally he sent his own son to them, saying, They will respect my son. When the tenants saw saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to, said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let, out, and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of the, in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is, a marv- it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will take be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this, the, his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Mark 1014 15 But then Jesus saw it. He was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Luke 13, 23 30. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, I will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all all the prophets and the kingdoms of God, but you... Yourselves cast out, and the people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are, are last who will be first, and some are and some are first who will be last. John three, one through eight. Now there was a man in the of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Romans 14:17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians six, nine through eleven. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, and neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, nor inherit will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of of our God.
0: All right. So think a little bit about those. What's the uh, what's the covenant structure that you hear in there? What are the provisions, stipulations, blessings, curses? Those who follow God will
1: get welcomed into heaven. There's blessings.
0: Yeah. Those who situations that Jesus sets up in these parables have expected rules that should be followed which are blatantly ignored by those who should be following them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there are consequences yeah of that. and consequences that go with them there's calls to obedience right the uh, the son who said he'd go but didn't the son who said he wouldn't, but he did. Uh, the keepers of the vineyard. Uh, there's consequences for disobedience. There's blessings for those who follow. Uh, there's warnings for the, in that last one, the first Corinthians, the, the immoral idolaters, adulterers, on and on and on. And yet, I, I love that the provision sort of comes... At the end of that one. But rather than okay, here's the provisions. Now you keep these stipulations, and then here's blessing and curses. Here it's like here's here's the blessing and curses, and then it almost ends with the provision. Such were some of you, but you were washed. Mm-hmm. But I already already did this for you. Therefore, honor God with your body. Alright, salvation history with regards to this. John the Baptist called Israel to repent. Before the coming judgment, he was preparing the way of the Lord. It appears, however, that John did not understand the timing of God's kingdom. John and Jesus and Paul, who we read there at the end, agreed that repentance and faith were necessary for entering the kingdom. Not just ethnic identity, not just political power, but repentance and faith seem to be these specific markers of those who are in the kingdom of God as opposed to those who are not all right uh so we've got like five more pages to finish and then I, I think we'll call it a day do you guys want a little break before we do that anybody I know after lunch sometimes it's nice to have a little break in there Let's take five minutes. We'll just let live stream run. And take five minutes. We'll start up at 2.30 and then finish out the last bit here. That was a lot. That was a lot. (laughs) We appreciate it. We had several years Yeah, Oh my gosh, John's yawnings. We had several years ago Some friends And the husband had narcolepsy But it was kind of undiagnosed narcolepsy They just knew he fell asleep a lot And the one night We were sitting at their house talking And He's sitting sitting in his chair In the corner And he's got got his feet kind of kicked out And he's sitting back like this and he's talking, but trying to, you know, like think of what he's saying and the pauses that he was putting in and then he never finished a sentence. <laughs> and he was pausing about like that and we're all sitting there like, okay, okay. Yeah. And then we look up <laughs> I'm like he just fell asleep in the middle of his own sentence that was awesome. That's that was, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure Seth was a bit of uh, I think so. I think so. Seth?
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. The stories he's told me of like, like, how are you still alive? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's like, scary. Fell asleep at stop sign. Did he fall asleep, he's he's fell asleep, fell asleep, asleep. Dri- driving? Yeah. yeah. And yeah, went off the that's highway. So scary. I've done that. I've done that twice. <laughs> he he told me he fell asleep driving, went off the highway. Woke up while he's in the median. The road keeps going. I went. Oh. Into, I went across two lanes of traffic and was heading straight towards a Pontiac Grand Prix. I we were on a way while i going down with Marco.
0: It is a strange designation. All right, let's jump in here. Uh, hopefully, hopefully the next half hour or so we should be able to finish this up. Maybe slightly more than that, but we'll aim for it. Although be, it may be a matter of common sense, it's important to remember that Jesus and his disciples knew the Old Testament as Scripture. The New Testament, at least in the form that we have it today, was unknown to any of the earliest Christians. It, it did not exist in Jesus' time. Uh, in fact, all of Paul's writing was at least 30 years out in the future, right? So Jesus is uh, speaking and ministering. His disciples are following him. And most of what we have as the New Testament did not exist. So anytime Jesus references scripture, he's talking about the Old Testament. It was the Old Testament that they memorized. It was the Old Testament they preached and cherished. Including uh, the they would have had, it's interesting, at least, at very least, it's interesting that Jesus does not disavow the Apocrypha. Uh, he also doesn't quote from it, which, again, is interesting. Later on uh, in, uh, is it Peter? Is it Jude? Some, Jude? Yeah, it's one of those who, who makes a reference from a story within the apocrypha uh and it's it's one of those where it's kind of like we said earlier you can have a historical thing that is historically accurate but that's not necessarily a validation of the whole book where we go back and go like all right which book was that from let's take that one in it, at least that one thing in there he says this is worth mentioning uh, now there's other references which i think we have to be a little careful with that there's other references to um outside beliefs of orthodox that get mentioned as a defense for one thing or another that aren't necessarily defending that behavior so uh, just for one example he says uh, he's talking about is there life after death and to prove that at least some people in this thing think there's life after death he goes uh, well isn't that why they baptize for the dead well he's not saying we should baptize for the dead he says some people do it because they believe there's life after death. So you always gotta be a little bit careful. The one apocryphal reference is uh the angel contending with Satan over the body, and he says, uh he doesn't he doesn't rebuke him, he says to him, The Lord rebuke you. And I don't know. I I think we don't build giant theological structures out of that.
2: So the as we have it in our Bible, is what they would have referred to as scripture? Yeah. Or,
0: okay. Yeah, 100%. 100%. All right, now, and it, so thinking in the. Um, and
2: today's Jews would consider that
0: Absolutely. As well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Without, and that was beyond debate, settled, finished, overdone, um, established. Now, so one of the one of the difficulties is as the Septuagint comes along, uh, that's a Greek translation of these Hebrew books, and uh, you can sort of end up with accumulations, sort of like we have when our translations come out. You know, like uh, I would say, there's a significant difference between the uh, English Standard Version and the New Living Translation, right? So we we read those differences for what they are but um, anyways that that's probably fodder for another day so therefore if we want to understand the new testament we have to understand how jesus and his disciples read and interpreted the old testament so both the following new testament passage and its old testament context so for example here Matthew 4 1 through 4 then Jesus was led out by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil after fasting 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry the tempter came to him and said if you're the son of God command these stones to become loaves of bread but he answered it is written man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God right so that's our new testament but pulling from Deuteronomy 8 1 through 10 The whole commandment that I command you today, you should be careful to do. You may live and multiply, go in and possess the land of the sword to give to your fathers. You should remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. He might humble you, testing you to know what's in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you, let you hunger. He fed you with manna, which you did not know. Uh, Nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Your clothing didn't wear out your foot didn't swell uh know then in your heart that a man, as a man disciplined his son so the lord your god disciplines you so you should keep the commandments of the lord your god by walking all his ways and fearing him all right we read a lot of that previously but you have this this promise of god's provision for his people and then we find jesus calling upon that in matthew 4 So how does the context of Deuteronomy 8 inform our interpretation of Matthew 4? What might Jesus be doing in citing this scripture in his temptation? Yeah, there's purpose in this moment. Uh, purpose, and it, as long as we're building a good uh, alliteration pastoral sermon here, uh, there's provision from God. Purpose, provision. We need one more, and we we can wrap that sucker up. Good three point sermon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Are confirmation of the authority of
2: the word of
0: God? Yeah yeah it, he is he's confirming that this is and that's actually really helpful for us that this is where my my hope is, this is where the authority comes from for living my life. I so if you think past some of that just a little bit, which is is helpful, given that this whole class is on biblical theology. uh Jesus isn't necessarily just proof texting this whole idea of, um, I shouldn't have to worry about food. Why? Because man doesn't live by bread alone. bye. every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, okay, he's 40 days into this big dog, and he's hungry, right? Which I love that it tells us, like like glimpse into the humanity, he's actually hungry there. Rather, uh, and I don't think rather is the right word to use there. Uh, even greater might, might be a way to say it. Uh, yes, he's trusting the provision of God. Yes, he's trusting in the authority of God. But who was that promise in Deuteronomy 8 given to? Israel. Israel. Israel's walking around in the desert, right? And God says, while you were there, your clothes didn't wear out, your feet didn't swell, and I gave you food every single day because you're my son, you're my children, I've delivered you and I'm leading you to this place of inheritance. And Jesus puts him place, himself in that place to say, I'm that true son. I'm that true Israel that God has promised, that God is providing for. Uh, therefore, uh, you can have a rather confident and yet humble confidence in the promises and perfect plan of God. Why? Because I've been adopted into that family. Now that's us speaking rather than Jesus speaking. Uh, We've been adopted and he's he's the only son of God, only begotten son of God, yet we've been adopted into that family. And especially the fact that he pulls in this Old Testament quote. uh, Hopefully what what this class teaches us to do is, is see the text, but then pull back from it what what is this broader context what's it given in me- what maybe is the even greater message that Jesus is saying here uh, that so one helpful way to think about that because we want to connect the text to the gospel is rather than us preaching uh, some dependence on God out of that like and God will supply all of your needs which is true like God provides for his people uh, just like he provided for the needs of John the Baptist when he got his head cut off, right? That was part of the provision and the goodness of God for him. (laughs) We better be careful what we say, what we have in mind when we say those things. Uh, But how much greater to say, no, Jesus was the fulfillment of that. You know, all all of the Old Testament manna that we read about that appears in the morning and then goes bad overnight. uh, He's been given to us. He is, he's going to say, I'm the bread of life. Uh, I... It's my body that's been broken that's been given for you. Uh, take and eat this in remembrance of me. Right? It's my blood that's shed for you. That what a better picture to say Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of it. And in him we've been adopted into that bread of life. All right, after his temptation, in the beginning of his public ministry, we find him preaching a message about the kingdom of God. So Matthew 7:14 from that time Jesus began to preach repent the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark one fourteen and fifteen after Jesus was arrested, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, "The time is fulfilled; the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, and believe the gospel." Luke four forty two to forty four, and when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him to come to him and would have kept him from from leaving them. But he said to them, "I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for." I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues in Judea. So it's an integral part of his preaching ministry seems to be this healing of the sick that we also find coming along with his ministry. So the following verses demonstrate and connect between the kingdom of God and Jesus'
1: ministry and healing. Tim, you want to read those? Matthew four twenty three to 24. And he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and healed them.
0: If you're not careful about commas, they can be those who are oppressed by demons, oppressed by epileptics, Commas are so important. All right, sorry, go ahead.
1: Matthew ten seven through eight, and proclaim as you go, saying, "The kingdom of heaven is at hand." Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Luke ten nine, heal the sick in it, and say to them, "The kingdom of God has come near to you." Right, so the
0: healing of diseases in jesus ministry is often related to or found in conjunction with casting out demons right this triumph over jesus and his kingdom over the demonic so matthew 12 24 to 29 but when the pharisees heard it they said it's only by Beelzebul the prince of demons that this man is casting out demons knowing their thoughts he said to them every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand if satan casts out Satan, satan he is divided against himself how then will his kingdom stand and if i cast out demons by Beelzebul by whom do your sons cast them out therefore they will be your judges but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house? Matthew 1222 23 Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the Son of David? Again, Son of David being one of those designations for the Messiah. All right, so how do exorcisms fit into the kingdom of God? It to
2: the person, but it also demonstrates his power and authority
0: over all beliefs. Yeah, it brings healing and deliverance to the person in need, which is is good but secondary, primary is that it demonstrates his power and authority over the kingdoms of this earth, over heaven, earth, and below the earth, right? Uh, so here's one possible description of the kingdom of God. It's from Tom Stellar. The kingdom of God is a dynamic reign of God in Christ, which is breaking into this present evil age with salvation and with foretaste of the age to come. Through the preaching of the gospel in the power of the Spirit, the kingdom of God is now in the process of delivering men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, from their sin and from Satan's oppression. It is here now in part, and one day will come in all its fullness to banish evil once and for all. All right, so let's, let's start putting some of these pieces together. Drawing from your own background knowledge of Jesus' teaching in the gospel... While Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God. What title is he applying to himself, and what titles are others applying to him and what do those mean? The primary one that he calls himself is what? Son of man. Son of man. What are some of the others that we've come across here even in just in our reading today?
3: From him or from other people?
0: Other people. Because Christ. Christ, son of David. Son of God. Yep. The prophet was one of them.
2: That's
0: good. That's true. Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> All right. While others commonly call Jesus Son of God, Son of David, or Christ, Jesus rarely, if ever, applies those titles to himself. This is possibly because these titles had militaristic connotations, and the Jewish culture of the first century would have therefore been misapplied to the purpose of Jesus first coming rather Jesus appears to favor the title son of man which probably is drawn from Daniel 7 choosing this less used title allows Jesus himself to fulfill the content of the title and define his own identity if you remember in Daniel 7 Daniel has this vision of heaven and sees the one that if we're not careful in how we read it, we say, oh, this is God the Father upon the throne because it's uh, this old guy with, you know, long white hair. And...
2: Well...
0: Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it, because of the fact that we have turned every story in the Bible into a kid's coloring page, uh, <laughs> then what we're apt to do is... Uh, Put them in categories. And and that's actually a great example of what is actually said about him and who's it referring to. And Jesus says, That's me. Like that was that was a vision of me. All right, salvation history here. Uh, Jesus' basic message was the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus' mighty deeds of healing and casting out demons demonstrate the reality of what he was proclaiming. So the kingdom is at hand. And he's going to demonstrate that through healing and casting out demons. All right, so let's trace the biblical theology of the kingdom of God. Like almost every biblical theological theme, the kingdom of God is rooted in Genesis 1 and 2. Here again is the familiar passage of God's kingdom to be represented through human beings that he has made in his image. Genesis 1, 26, 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image. And he's going to say, let them have dominion. Let them rule over the earth. Let them subdue it. The kingdom of God has also been seen in subsequent events in salvation history. So there's a couple of these. Tim, do you want to read that? Psalm 29 and then Exodus 15.
1: Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name worship the lord in the splendor of holiness the voice of the lord is over the waters the god of glory thunders the lord over many waters the lord sits enthroned over the flood the lord sits enthroned as king forever exodus 15 18 the moses and the people of israel sang this song to the lord saying i will sing to the lord for he has triumphed gloriously the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea the lord is my strength and my song And he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty you overthrow your adversaries, you send out your fury it comes it consumes them like stubble at the blast of your nostrils. The waters piled up the floods stood up in a heap, the deep the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, "I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome, glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your hand, your right hand, the earth has swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling? seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of of your arm. There are are still a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. All right, so we
0: see a couple of things referenced here, the flood and the exodus, as God reveals himself as victorious, as ruler over even foreign nations and their gods. The Old Testament looks forward to a day in which God's kingly rule will be extended to all nations. Psalm 22 says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, for kingship belongs to the Lord. Psalm 47, clap your hands. All people shout to God with loud shouts of joy, for the Lord is most high. He is to be feared, a great God over all of the earth. He goes on to say, uh, other kings will bow before him. This hope is particularly predominant in... Yes, sorry. Well, hello. Welcome back. Uh, This hope is particularly prominent in the book of Daniel, an important book for the New Testament. So Daniel 2... 44, and in those days of the kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall his kingdom be left to another people. It shall break into pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. That's maybe a good reminder uh, for us who get a little freaked out over American politics, that that's God's promise. His kingdom will stand forever, and he will break all the rest of them. Daniel, except except for the Republicans, (laughs) clearly, clearly Daniel seven thirteen to 18 I saw in the night visions behold the clouds of the heavens came one like the son of man uh, he came to the ancient of days and he presented before him and to him was given dominion glory and a kingdom all the peoples and nations languages would serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed all right so as we've seen, both John the Baptist and Jesus announced that kingdom, announcing uh, whether John knew it or not, that the king has come. And in some ways, however, Jesus' teaching was very different from John's. Notice the perspective offered in these following passages. Tim, you want to read that? These are from Matthew 13, the first two, and the one from Mark 4.
1: Another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And his servants of the master of the house came to him and said, Master, did you not sow, sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, My enemy has done this. So, so these servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and bind them, in bundles them to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Matthew 13, 43 Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came, came to him, saying, Explain to us this parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed, seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the, their father he who has ears let him hear mark 4:26 to 32 and he said the kingdom of god is as if a man should scatter the seed on the ground he sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows he knows not how the earth produces by itself first the blade then the ear then the Than the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown in the ground is the smallest of of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up to become larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Right, so what might
0: be the mystery of the kingdom that Jesus teaches, which was perhaps not fully understood by John the Baptist or initially by John's disciples? We're not
2: pulling out the
0: evil ones yet. Yeah, we're not pulling out the evil ones yet. Uh, because if you are looking for a right and perfect kingdom of jews only right who the covenant people have been adopted in and then planted into uh the promised land well then there's no sin there's no gentiles there's certainly no romans and what they missed was there's a progressive nature to this there's coming uh, the savior who will deal with men's sins and then more and more as he brings their hearts into the right place he's going to uh, be establishing that kingdom he's going to be building and building It kind of seems like the disciples as well as John have missed that up to this point. So a central question that needs to be answered concerning the kingdom is whether Jesus actually established it in his first coming. There are some theologians who argue that Jesus offered the kingdom to Israel, but Israel rejected it. And therefore, Jesus didn't establish it and won't until he returns. Luke 17, 20, 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. When thinking about the kingdom and eschatology, the position that we're going to argue for in here is called inaugurated eschatology. In brief, inaugurated eschatology teaches that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has inaugurated, it has brought the beginning of the kingdom of God in fullness upon the earth, and yet it has not been consummated. We do not see it in fullness yet. Therefore, there is an already and not yet aspect to the fulfillment of the Old Testament hope for the ministry of Jesus. Inaugurated eschatology was a difficult concept for Jesus' disciples to grasp. The following passage demonstrates that even Jesus' resurrection, the disciples are still grappling with how God's plan. Will unfold for His promises. Tim, you want to read Acts one, one through eight.
1: In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when He was taken up. After He had given commands, after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen, He He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will, be, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the no times or seasons that my Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth.
0: So there's a lot more references to this that we could kind of fit into this part of the discussion uh, but considering the fact that we're close to wrapping it up here, uh, let's look at Revelation 11: 15 to 18. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, "The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever." And the twenty four elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and is who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, both small and great, and destroying the destroyers of the earth. right, so what does it mean that God is identified here as Lord God Almighty and that he has begun to reign? Like, hasn't he reigned throughout all of history? The second exodus reign. Second exodus reign. That was was a good uh, biblical theology way of saying it. What do you mean by second exodus reign?
2: Of the military leader Christ, but then we see again in Revelation. But we get to see the beginning of that coming to fruition. But we obviously have not seen, like, just through visible evidence, like, we have not seen the end of times yet because we're still here yeah. and we're either destroyed or with Christ. So we are in the beginning of it because Christ has come and has defeated sin but he has not finished the work yet
3: the destroying of the destroyer is kind of what I think of in that context is, I mean I think we all, hopefully we all agree, but we we all agree that Satan is in and of himself ruled by God um, and his even he is not with outside of God's sovereignty. But in a sense, like there's the statement that's made that um, Satan is is reigning over the earth in this time. Um, and that will completely be vanquished altogether in when uh, the kingdom
0: is consummated. So Do important you, distinction, because I, I think – uh, you kind of touched on something important that I was going to lead us towards is Satan is identified as the prince and the power of the air now at work in the sons of disobedience right so we we have that designation for him but if we're not if we're not careful if we don't pull these theological threads uh, through the Old Testament into the New Testament narratives that we have we will make the mistake that word of faith teaching does that says at Adam and Eve at the beginning they surrendered all authority in heaven and earth to satan and now satan is sovereign ruler over earth and god actually can't do anything because not because he's weaker but because he's a gentleman that's their argument he's a gentleman he kind of made this agreement now he's sticking to it and so he's not going to do anything unless we speak it into existence and we give it power therefore we are the ones who have to speak it and then god can work in the earth it's not even hyperbole, like that's literally what they believe, and it's really really sad even sadder is that we probably used to be there uh, I, would, I would yeah. say it's more like he's
2: just got, you know, influence everywhere, because you know, sin's everywhere, guesses, yeah. you know and like, you know, God still holds the chain
0: <laughs> yes, yes, God still holds the chain uh, Martin Luther I, I like his his reference that even the devil is God's devil, like he belongs to him now if he has power in the earth it's because god has allowed it why would god allow that well just like every writer of every movie writes in the bad guy and gives them a certain sphere of authority and power and destruction because it makes it that much sweeter at the end when he's destroyed you know it makes the good guy that much better that much more of a hero. And God is putting his glory on display, even in Satan, which I love. And I forget the reference off the top of my head where it's like, if they would have known what they were doing, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. But Satan's thinking, I won, I triumphed. And God's like, ah, you did exactly what I wanted. Like It, it's, it is all just this perfect puzzle piece that God is building until the day... Jesus, who reigns over all things, our God is in the heavens. He does as he pleases. But there's coming a day that God has set where Jesus will reign. It's the sit at my feet until I make your enemies a footstool for you. Like, we don't see that fully enacted. It's true right now. But there's coming a day when uh, they'll say, and he has begun to reign. The one who's reigned the whole time, this is even better. It's just a glorious, glorious picture of what is coming. So, last scripture: First Corinthians 15:22 to 28. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order: Christ the first fruits; then at his coming those who belong to Christ; then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes of hope and faith, fixed not upon our current reality, that balancing of exile and exodus, the the world in which we live as redeemed sons and daughters of the King, and yet we look around and we feel, oh God, at times like we are living far from home. Pray our hope, God, would be set in our King who right now is ruling over all things, who right now is seated on the throne, who is our great intercessor, intercessor is our great high priest pleading our case before God. And I thank you, Lord, that there will come a day when we will be part of that great crowd. What a beautiful truth. We get to be part of the voices that say, now has come the kingdom of our God and he has begun to reign. Lord, we will get to see it, either on this earth or from the other side in eternity. But we just say our hope is fixed on Christ, our King. So continue your good work of circumcising our hearts, of making us more and more shaped into his image and likeness that we might bring you glory in our days upon this earth. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So um, just a couple parting notes. Make sure if you haven't done it already, you download the church app. Uh, We'll post relatively soon on there syllabus for the second half of this. Uh, I'm going to try and find some additional resource if you guys are interested to be able to read in conjunction with it. Uh, but then also make sure that you mark on your calendars July 29th as the next day for School of Ministry. And then uh, we'll do the Tuesday, August 1st, and Thursday, August 3rd following that. And
3: you want the essays by the first?
0: Yeah, and it, if you're writing essays, let's just do it by the same day, by the first of August. That way the schedule stays the same. Good. All right. Okay. Thank you for coming. The first week in August, yeah. I
3: can't remember. Did we last year when we did that, we still on Sunday
0: came to EWC for church service, right? Or did we have it? We were at Jonas's, yeah. In the the barn. Oh, really? Yeah.
3: August 6th. Yeah. Goodbye. Wait, so that would be at Jonas's.
0: Dude, that's awesome.
2: What's happening at Jonas's? That's the...
1: That's the...
0: Uh, One Josiah will be Uh-oh. preaching. Oh! Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Preach with earplugs. And we'll get you some of those like blinders, like the horses wear like okay. this. Okay. So you can't see any of this <laughs> happening over here. Earplugs in. You're just happily droning on. <laughs> Welder's helmet.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: that's true. That's true.
1: Just imagine. So July 29th, August 1st, and
0: Yes.